Hello everybody and welcome to part one of a special Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction Advent series. We're doing four special episodes. One will come on each Sunday of Advent, leading us up to Christmas. The idea was inspired by my Norwegian friend who said that the Norwegian custom is for each of the Sundays in December, you drink aquavit and I think just get drunk all day. You basically <laughs> have to start at breakfast time and you carry on all day and we're not doing that. But we're going to do each Sunday a new episode. Me and Chris. Crikey. Crikey. They won't even be Christmas themed. It's oh. just that there'll be stories that relate to our topics of Weird East Anglia. <laughs> but we will feel Christmassy. Yep, you're wearing a sparkly jumper. It will be a special rain of presents upon the listener mm. to receive an episode every week. What do you think? They might be sick of it by Christmas. Well, sure, then they'll be happy to turn off until January for something else. So, yes, I've got a sparkly jumper on. I have a number of sparkly items of clothing. I shall wear one for each recording. I've recently bought some tights with snowflakes. They might make an appearance. Oh, I'm feeling festive. How about you, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> you the Christmas will decorations be. went up at work yesterday. I suppose that's the first indication. That's festive for you. There yeah. you go. Lovely. And we're going to drink a festive drink each time. Today, we've got salted caramel Baileys. <laughs> it's like they've taken Christmas Baileys and added a whole extra level to it. And we've got giant balls in it, giant balls of ice. Mm. I mm. mean, to me, this just tastes of like normal Baileys. Baileys. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. That's Christmassy enough. I mean, is it worth saying that the bottle is probably around about a year old? So possibly some of the, um, I don't the flavour that... has dissipated. No, I don't think that's how drinks work. I don't know. When I, I, don't... When I opened it, I felt like there was almost like a slight let off of fizz. You know, like when you open a, a <laughs> bottle of beer or something. Has it been fermenting? No, it's just been fermenting and all the... Uh... I think the it came to us last like Christmas, in fact. Yeah. But we're going to drink it all between now and Christmas. How no, late to the party does that make Baileys? <laughs> Salted caramel wise. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. I think it's going forever, salted caramel. Yeah, it's here to stay, isn't it? There was a while when I thought it was late. I thought it was over, but it's not over. What are they doing on MasterChef? Uh, you know, desserts. Is anyone making salted caramel desserts? Oh, it's all desserts? rhubarb at the moment. <laughs> Disgusting. Rhubarb and strawberries. No, thanks. Much, much awfulness. Today, Advent number one, we will hear the story of the exploding bath chair. It's true. Maybe this is how you're starting. What exactly is a bath chair? I can, I'll t- shall we come to it? Okay, fine. I have, cov- I, I, I have covered this. Okay, good. I've covered it. So, for the story of the exploding bath chair, we start with an explosion. <laughs> well, yes. Around 2 or 3pm on the 23rd of July, 1943. Ah, the summer. How appropriate. Less than half a mile from the town centre of Rayleigh in Essex, okay. a sudden loud kablam shattered the peace of the day. You're right, it is summer and we're in winter, <laughs> but we won't worry. It being wartime, mm. oh, the, yeah, of course. the first of thought place. of the residents was that enemy action had come to the town and a German bomb had struck. Right. 
Sounds like an episode of Dad's Army already. Yeah, well, if only Dad's Army... No, no, I guess this wasn't really appropriate for Dad's Army. So, the scene of the explosion, what had happened? It was certainly a mess. There is a report of the incident from the Essex Police's History Notebook, now made available on their website. The report states, There was a devastating tangle of metal and human remains in the road. Christ. Nearby to the scene of devastation, a woman lay screaming and wounded. It gets grislier still. A left leg was seen hanging four metres high up in a tree and the right leg had been hurled 15 metres away into a front garden. Like when people, you see uh, trainers just hanging off telegraph wires. But this had the leg inside. Oh, yeah. And I'm sorry because I've just realised we're starting off all festive adventy. I've immediately flung us into the world of human remains and dismembered bodies. So, um, I mean, that's advent for you. And actually, you know... Still in living memory, pretty much. 1943, yes. Yeah, Yeah, if you were very old, this would be your living memory. What on earth had happened, Chris? Well, I mean, I'm going to guess a bath chair exploded. And not a German bomb. (laughs) Police came to investigate the scene. The wreckage of metal was identified as a bath chair. Now, we come to it. Okay, great. Have you any inkling to the nature of a bath chair? I suppose in my mind what I think it is is probably like a wheelchair. Mm. But I don't understand why it's called a bath chair. Well... It's a sort of wheelchair or carriage mm. for one person. Carriage for one sounds a lot carriage more glamorous than perhaps. <laughs> I think there's a few sort of different designs, but there's wheels at the front and back. Right. And a hood on some of them, a hood that could be pulled up and over. So it's sort of like on a pram. Okay. But the front's a bit lower. Okay. It's for adults. Okay. You're not like a lying down like a crying baby. I mean, because in my mind, it's something like you would see in an episode of Last of the Summer Wine. And yeah. uh, Compo's gone, no, in a bath. Right. Uh, and wheels see. on it and it's going down a hillside <laughs> or something like that. It's not an actual bath. No. It's actually, I'll tell you why it's called a bath chair. These sorts of things used to be used to transport ill and disabled people mm. around and they're named after their place of invention. Ah, the town of Bath. The town of Bath. Right. And ill people would often visit the Roman baths there in Bath to bathe in the supposedly recuperative waters. Yes. So it was invented in the town as a means of kind of transporting... Tipping them in. Well, <laughs> I don't think they just capsized them into the baths. Easy way. <laughs> so it was, yeah, there are means of transporting incapacitated people around. Can you still place. go in the Roman baths in Bath today? No. Well, I say no. I visited once. Right. And I seem to recall it being green and murky oh, I, and i think it's, it's visible you can yeah because it. it's it's like um a visitor center it's a historic attraction now so you can go and look around and it's amazing kind of system of buildings mm. but as far as i know it's not used for the purpose of bathing because it's you know it's ancient yeah yeah sure and you wouldn't want people smashing their feet onto the mosaics and like walking into the pillars and whatever but there's still presumably the belief that the water of bath has recuperative effects i suppose yeah just as at other places such as royal tunbridge wells okay the famous wells <laughs> the wells of tunbridge wells. just send them into the well no that's not what happens who did this bath chair belong to and why, in God's name, had it exploded? I'm assuming these questions are rhetorical and you're not Ooh. expecting me to answer. The owner of the chair and of the now dismembered legs <laughs> was discovered to be a 47-year-old man named Archibald Brown. Mm-hmm. The screaming woman nearby was Doris Mitchell, a nurse. And as the police investigated the situation, they discovered a bit more. Doris Mitchell was one of three private nurses 
who were hired to look after Mr Brown. Mr Brown had been in a motorbike accident in his 20s and after many years of pain was now really unable to walk right. very well or oh, very far. Not having legs probably put pay to that, didn't it? Well, not walking anywhere once your legs have been exploded into a tree. So festive we are today. <laughs> Such festive stories. Mr Brown lived on a steep hill not too far away called London Hill. The Browns were a family of some note in the history of the town, Raylian Essex. Archibald's ancestor, T.J. Brown, had owned a fine brick windmill and sold flour to many bakeries in the area. The mill was still in use in the 1940s, where we are now, although steam power had replaced wind power, of course, and the sails to the mill had been removed. Right. So the mill building was still there, but you didn't have its fine. No, it's become like a kind of dirty symbol of (laughs) industrialisation. I suppose so, yeah. In many ways, this story is a symbol of the changing times. Right. From the old rural times to the new sordid Exploding times. Exploding times, exactly. <laughs> These sordid exploding times. So Archibald Brown lived in the mill house with his wife, another Doris. Mm. And at the time of the explosion, one of their two sons was also staying with them. His name was Eric. Eric was in the army, but at the time of the explosion was home on compassionate leave. Right. So the police now knew who had been blown up. How did they ID him? Because they were able to talk to Doris Mitchell. Oh, the okay. She woman. stopped screaming and not long enough to say. Yes, she had. Well, she had to be, formally. of course, rushed to hospital, yes. and then and then once she was in hospital, they were able to talk to her and say, right. "Whose legs are in the tree? Who are you?" Firstly, and then and then whose legs are in the tree? And then what happened? But Doris didn't know what had happened. All right. she knew was a sudden explosion. Right. Poor Doris said that she saw and heard the sudden explosion and she said she heard like the pieces of body falling around her. Mm-hmm. She was lucky to survive. Splatting down, I suppose. She was very lucky to survive. The police continued their investigations and over the coming days, several things came to light. The explosive device, they found some kind of remnants among the wreckage. Mm. It was identified as a number 75 Hawkins grenade. Oh. This is an anti-tank grenade (laughs) that had been developed for use by the British Army and the Home Guard. It was first used in the previous year, 1942. And these grenades, they're not like when you think of a grenade. You know more about grenades than I do, even already, because in my mind, every grenade is around a sort of oblong hand grenade. The clue is hand grenade. Sure, now that you say that to me, it makes total sense that a hand grenade is distinct to a different kind of grenade, but I hadn't really considered this Those ones the uh, Germans have in uh, war films where it's on a stick. A you stick know, there's, grenade? There's a stick and then there's a bit on the end, isn't like it? Like a lolly? Lob the stick. No, like uh, like a cricket bat. Oh, what, and you fling well, no, it? not as big. More like a, uh, a rounder's bat. And do you sort of... F- yeah, the, the stick is for helping with the flinging. Like a the- lacrosse bat? Uh, yeah, with an explosive Like you're end. flinging it in the lacrosse scenario and you're flinging a grenade. Yeah. And like, what's the benefit of that? You can fling further than your hand can no, throw. No, 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 no. The grenade is stuck on the end of the stick, so yes. you're throwing the whole thing. Oh, I it's see. It's not the like the cross where you're using it to wang the grenade. I get you. I thought it was more of a wanging situation. Actually, I'm beginning to question whether you've ever seen a German war film now. I don't think I have. Oh, you must have done. I've seen Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> is it not accurate? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's probably one in that. <laughs> so these grenades are rectangular oh, okay. in shape, about 15 centimetres long and about half that wide. So right. the classic rectangle. Yep. They contain around 45 grams of explosives. I assume that's quite a lot. I think so. And they also have a chemical igniter in there. Mm. So the idea is you, when the tank rolls over the grenade, so you'd put them on the ground. Right, it activates. And it um, cracks the igniter, the chemicals drizzle See. down onto the explosives and kaboom. Right, yep. The grenade is detonated. 
back to the grenade in a bit. So just okay, remember about the grenade. Thought. We must now hear some more details about the home life of the Browns. Who was the victim? Mr. Brown. Yeah, Mr. Brown. Yeah. We must think who he was. Okay, yeah, so that we're not just laughing at his misfortune. No, no, in order to solve the mystery yes. of what happened. It seems that Archibald, now deceased, was a tyrant mm. within his own home. Despite his disability, he ruled over all aspects of his wife's life and was both emotionally and physically abusive to both her and to their two sons, Colin and Eric, as they had grown up. Oh dear. So maybe legs in a tree is all he deserved. Archibald had been tormented by great pain since his accident 23 years earlier, but still, it's no excuse for being such a tyrant no. in your own home. Must make it a bit harder, though. I just, think... You know, you're, you're then just verbally and uh, mentally tyrannical he, rather he, than physically um, abusive, presumably. I think he was physically abusive. Did I think it got worse over the years. I bet he years. hit people with his stick. Yeah, hit with the stick, no doubt. And I think... He could move around a bit. He just couldn't walk a lot. Right. And I think also the pain, it, the injuries kind of exacerbated over the, the years. So during the childhood of his sons, it was probably, he was more mobile. And thus the situation for them was worse. Festive. We're nothing but festive here. I'll get some uh, jingle bells and just bed them underneath throughout the whole Sprinkle thing. Sprinkle them in when the moment <laughs> seems right. <laughs> so now we have a bit more information about the home life of Archibald Brown. He was a bastard. Brown. He was a bastard. Does it make you suspect foul play? <laughs> well, okay, right. I was just going to say, where's his lovely wife laid her hands on an anti-tank mine when mm. I remembered mm. the recuperating son mm. back from the war? He's probably smuggled it off the body of a dead soldier, back hasn't he? Back from the Great War. No, the Great War is the first one. I know, war. I'm just, it's like in salad fingers. War. It's in salad <laughs> fingers, he goes, back from the Great War. A recommendation for those of you who haven't seen salad fingers to go and find salad fingers. It's on YouTube. Is it? Yes. When Nurse Doris Mitchell was recovered enough to speak to the police, she recounted what had happened on the day of the accident. And as I say, she was lucky to be alive. It seems that the frame and the cushions of the bath chair had to some extent shielded her from the worst of the explosion. Wow, because she was pushing him along. She was pushing him along, exactly. Mitchell said that at around 1.45pm, she had gone to the air raid shelter next to the mill house. This is where the bath chair was kept. Archibald liked to go out in the bath chair for afternoon walks. And apparently he had become tired of his family and kind of even, you know, dismissive and rude to his his family. But he did enjoy the afternoon walks with his nurses where they would have a nice chat on that kind of thing. Saucy bugger. Well, not so saucy, I think, as probably bored. I don't know. Anyway, on this day, and rather unusually, the shelter was locked from the inside and Nurse Doris could not get in to get the bath chair out. She went to fetch Mrs Brown for help and said, I can't get in. What's going on? When the two women returned to the air raid shelter, they found 19-year-old Eric Brown coming out. (laughs) He seemed irritable and invaded their questions about what he had been doing and why the door had been locked. Nonetheless, they fetched the chair and took it back to the house where they helped Archibald into it. He had his pyjamas on, and they put a blanket over his knees and they tucked some cushions in around him for comfort. Then off Archibald and Nurse Mitchell went down the hill. After 15 minutes or so, she recounted, he wanted a cigarette. (laughs) So Mitchell went around to the front of the bath chair, lit the cigarette for him and then back around to the back to push him along further. It was at this moment that the sudden explosion occurred. What a shock for Nurse Doris. 
What a great shock. Shock for all involved, I should A shock think. for everyone in the whole town to hear this explosion. So now the police, led by head of Essex CID, George Totterdell, mm. knew that they must interview Eric Brown. He seems highly suspect in this situation. Yep. First place my mind went. Yep. And you didn't even know he'd been in the air raid shelter acting suspiciously at that <laughs> point. First they thought, we'll look a bit into his background. We want to come at this interview feeling prepared. Mm, yeah, sure. Good police work yep. there to be prepared. Right, yep. Don't ask any questions to which you don't already know the answers. No, that's lawyers, isn't it? Sorry, <laughs> carry on. You can... The yeah. police are always asking questions to which they don't know the answers. That's the point. But you need like a backup question and other answers, I feel like, to just take people off guard. Like Parky. Yes, right, like Parkinson. <laughs> or Louis Theroux. Louis Theroux would just sort of sit and stare at you. Go, you. Mm. Mm. And then allow you to talk yourself into a confession. Exactly. They should get Louis into to the police interviewing room, shouldn't they? Imagine he, got, if... he got bloody Savile to implicate oh, himself, God. didn't he? Nobody oh, took God. any notice though, did they? No. Sorry, I feel like I'm always bringing Savile up. You are. Why so much Savile talk? Not at Christmas, Chris. What the police found out about Eric Brown only solidified the impression that he must have been involved somehow in the exploding bath chair incident. Be shifty. From... 1940 to 1942, he had worked at Barclays Bank in Rochford, but he had been asked to leave after a period of what the police history calls bizarre behaviour. But there is no further extrapolation on what bizarre behaviour means. Right. I mean, it could be anything from like wearing inappropriate clothes to work to going insane and punching people in the Tourette's, face. Tourette's, maybe had Tourette's. Yeah, it, it really doesn't shed much light on it. In the autumn of 1942, he was called up to serve in the army and was posted to Lincolnshire. Was that because he had only just come of age to be conscripted? I assume so, because at the time of the explosion, he was 19. Oh, right, yeah. So, and this is like the, the previous year. So, yes, that's what I had imagined, is that when he turned 18, he got conscripted. He was posted to Spilsby in Lincolnshire. In his camp at Spilsby, the police discovered, was a store of about 200 Hawkins grenades <laughs> and Eric was trained in their use. One thing did puzzle Totterdell and his team. It seemed clear to them what had happened. Yep. Eric had brought home a grenade. We're all jumping to that conclusion. He'd put it under the bath chair yep. and his father had exploded. Yep. But what do you think was puzzling them? How the grenade had armed? Yes. Why? Because... Normally, it would take the weight of a tank yes. to go across the grenade to set the ignition off and explode it. That's a bony old man's ass. Exactly. And Archibald Brown had not even set it off initially getting into the chair. Right, yeah. It had actually been some time later. He modified it, put it on a timer. So they thought he must have done something to the grenade mm. to make this happen. And they carried out some experiments on similar bar chairs <laughs> using similar grenades. This is uh, what ballistics is all about, I isn't know. it? Basically blowing stuff up with different things. What a fun day they must have had. Like, what's the um, uh, shooting shooting bullets into walls, you mm. know, and, and, a, and a bullet fragments in a certain, or a certain kind of bullet fragments in a certain kind of way in yes. a certain kind of material. This, is, bulli- then, this is forensic yeah. science. Not 101. I mean, <laughs> no, quite you, advanced. You're not blowing up bath chairs on your first day, are you? <laughs> quite advanced, but... Um, Probably just doing some induction. Yeah, imagine all those bath chairs they must have exploded. So they concluded that what must have happened was that a special pressure plate had been put on top of the grenade, had been fitted to the top, which meant that less weight was needed to trigger the ignition. Right, right. Yes, so the weight was focused upon a smaller area. I guess so, or the pressure plate was already already exerting an amount of force and it didn't require as much force to then 
trigger the ignition and and the explosion. This is like when I had mice in my house in London, and rats were, in the walls, was it? We well, know about no, that. this is this is the mice in the kitchen <laughs> who were, um, and we had mouse traps, but they were too small to set the mouse traps off. So they would just dance over the mouse traps and <laughs> scoff down the cheese or the peanut butter or whatever we put yeah. on there, and then not set them off. So I had to develop a very um, elaborate system of counterbalancing 1p coins onto the trap. And, and then I worked out exactly how many 1p coins it would take to tip the trap and then did like two less. And from that point on, oh, those we caught poor the mice. mice. Yeah, but they were shitting know, in my food. I know they were shitting. I know. It's all the same. With this information, you can just quickly rig up a Hawkins 75 grenade to blow up an old man. Don't tell the police they'll come after us. Yeah, you get in trouble for this kind of thing. It's like the anarchist's cookbook. Yeah, I was going to say. Now it was time to bring in young Eric for questioning. He soon confessed. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't a master criminal. No, because it seems like if you did really want to do away with your dad and not be caught, there are probably less specific ways of doing it. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's a bizarre choice in many ways, isn't it? It's an elaborate plan. He soon confessed. He said that his mother's life had been made intolerable by his father's abusive and foul behaviour towards her. Right. And Eric said the only escape he could see for his mother was his father's death, and only then would she be able to live a normal life. Oh, that's sad. And he also said this was also the only way his father could be released from his physical sufferings was for him to die mercifully. <laughs> I know. This is what he said. Right. Though. I mean, I suppose it was probably quick. Yeah, it would have been quick. So when Eric returned home on leave... He brought with him a Hawkins grenade, which he adapted with a new top plate. This is very shoddy work by the quartermaster at Spillsbury or wherever it was. He what was. should you think they should be signed out? Yes. Maybe. You can't just walk off the base with a grenade. Come I don't on. know how it works in the army. Well. But you're right. It does seem remiss to not count your grenades. <laughs> count them in, count them out. He then fitted the grenade under the seat of the bath chair, ready for his father to sit down. Now, Eric was very lucky in some ways because... The grenade could have detonated when his father sure. first sat oh, in right. the house. Right, yeah. And that would have potentially also Taken killed his else. mother. But you seem to be suggesting he probably isn't the uh, brightest spark. Well, let's see what happens. But yeah, so so his mother could have been killed. Doris Mitchell, the nurse, certainly yeah, yeah. could have been killed. She was, and was in lucky close proximity the entire time. And apparently, poor Doris Mitchell walked with a limp for the rest of her life and she had injuries to her arms that would kind of never got oh, any yeah. better. But instead of it blowing up back at the house, it blew up as they proceeded down towards the town. So the police concluded that as Archibald shifted his weight around Mm. after leaning forward to have his cigarette lit, that was what had somehow then leaning back into the chair had triggered the plate. And apparently I read that the roads in, in that part were really bumpy and uneven and I think they were going downhill, so I wonder if it was a sort of a combination right. of just the like the wrong moment of him leaning his back in his chair, tip to the right point. Yeah. plus them going over like a slight bump on the road, and that was what triggered the ignition. Uh, and pow, kablam! Nucleoid um, war. Nucleoid war, exactly. Eric was formally arrested and charged with murder on the twenty-first of September. At the time, murder was a capital offence, so the stakes were very high. Mm. His trial took place at the start of November, and perhaps surprisingly, he pleaded not guilty. <laughs> right, diminished responsibility or something. Yes, so the facts of the case weren't really disputed, right. and he had said, yes, this is what I did. 
But his defence was not guilty by way of insanity, that he wasn't culpable. He could not be charged with the most serious capital offence of murder because of diminished responsibility due to insanity. Evidence was given to show his previous erratic behaviour. At the bank. At the bank. Again, this mysterious behaviour. And a defence doctor, a doctor that the defence team called gave a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Oh, right. He was also examined by a prison doctor, and this prison doctor was called on behalf of the prosecution. The prison doctor declared him sane, Mm. but he did say in his testimony that Eric had tried to cut his own throat while in prison. Mm. And this may have also swayed the jury to think that doesn't really sound like the actions Actions of of a sane man. Of a sane man. However, what's the point of trying to avoid the death sentence if you're just going to kill yourself? Well, I imagine he was filled with remorse. And probably insane. And and obviously had some mental health problems. So the trial came to its end and the jury found him guilty but insane. Guilty of being insane. So they could say, yes, we think he did this, yeah. but we don't think that he should face the death penalty as a result of his mm. actions. So Eric wasn't sentenced to death, but he was imprisoned for over 30 years as a... I don't think he was in an asylum, but he was in some sort of a, a prison secure for wing. a secure wing. Yeah. And he was released in 1975. Oh, wow. So he would have only been kind of 50. Oh, 50s, yeah. Yeah. So that's the end to that kind of exploding bath chair bit. But I thought, just for the end, yeah. let's talk a, a tiny little bit about the mill, because I uh, found out some more about oh, the mill. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Grenades, explosions, insanity. But I want now, more ballistics. Now the mill. Not grinding flour. <laughs> the old windmill, where the Brown family lived, is now a tourist attraction. Oh, really? Not because the Brown family lived no, there. No, not because of the uh, <laughs> remains of the bath chair that are in the ground. So it carried on as a, as a mill for a time. But in the kind of 60s, as the, as the 60s came in, the rise of the supermarkets mm. saw the closure of many small bakeries in yeah, the local sure. area, which meant that there wasn't a demand for flour made by these small suppliers either because the supermarkets were all buying their flour in like massive, massive quantities yeah. from huge industrial yeah, mills. Yeah. So sadly, I suppose the, the mill stopped. Ceased to mill. It ceased to mill. The council bought it in the 1960s. Oh, why? I think as a site of historic interest. Right. Okay. It was. Um, so I mean, it was. It went back a fair way, did it? it wasn't yeah. Just it was. Of... A, it was a, a few hundred years old. Oh. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. All right. Yeah. Sure. I think so. The council bought it and they refitted the sails. A local man offered to refit the sails. He said, "Let's return it to its former splendor." So the sails still existed. They just needed to put it back he, on. No, he, he, had got to make ones. Ones, right? he got new ones. He got new ones. Unfortunately, he did a botched job. <laughs> um, in the terrible storm of 1974. Parts of the sails became detached and flew around the town of Rayleigh. Luckily, they did not strike anybody, adding to the terrible toll of death related to the mill. mill. So that was, for a while, no more sails on the mill. But at some point between now and then, a proper person put the sails back up. And the mill is now used as a community centre. It's got a museum. It's got facilities for such events as conferences. Mm. You could get married at the mill and have your wedding reception there. So... It has become a much happier place than once it was during the reign of tyrant Archibald Brown. And what became of Eric Brown once he was released? Don't know. We don't know. He's no. not still. You he know. would. He would have retired into anonymity, I think, and hopefully lived out a kind of relatively peaceful life. Obviously, you can't blow up your dad, but I also feel some sympathy for him. I think that he was sort of felt that he was driven to this terrible act. 
That's the story of the exploding bath chair. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Happy Advent number one. Yeah, sorry. This is what? This is the first weekend of December. It's yes. a little bit early for wishing people Christmas, yes. isn't it? So you can expect three more equally unfestive <laughs> stories. Come on. They must get a little bit more festive I'll the try. closer we get. I'll try and make them each time slightly more festive than the last slightly more festive than the story that happened in July of a man being exploded and his limbs flying into the trees. We set the bar quite low, haven't we, <laughs> yeah, for the yeah. beginning? You can only get more festive from that. You might say that his limbs were like a sort of Christmas Tree bauble <laughs> dangling up. Um, but yes, I'll try and get a bit more festive each time we go. We'll be back next Sunday for set your clocks. the next part of the Advent Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction series. See you next time.